Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is Tuesday Home Time. It's Jan Bartlett and I'm back again for another week. Today, increasing human rights abuses in the Philippines. I'll be speaking to May Kotsakis from the Palace from the Philippines Australia Solidarity Association. Part two of the interview with Fra Hughes about his visits to Palestine, introducing the new president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr. Sue Wareham, a new book looking at the killings in Indonesia in the 1960s by academic at Darwin University, Dr. Vanessa Heerman. But first, Mr. Kevin Healy, and we'll let's see what he's been doing the last week. A week, Jane, listener, when, if only we could have got out of the country for a few days to avoid the welter of jingoistic warmongering, the glorious dead, whom I'm sure would much rather be the not-so-glorious alive, the centenary of the armistice to end the war to end all wars, the slaughter and murder that honed the great values that make Trubler Wazzy the country we are today. And celebrating a military disaster on the wrong beach may well reflect Trublowati today, nauseating so-called celebrations, commemorations, and let's not demean, understate the role of the cannon fodder sent to slaughter and be slaughtered on behalf of the world's financial elite, but I rather feel they would prefer us not to use their role as an excuse to eulogise war, whip up confected patriotism under the guise of pointing out the horrors of that which we eulogise. If we do want to end all wars, we could start by not spending trillions on the merchandise of the merchants of death and recruiting young people, young cannon fodder who love killing people. The brave young men and women in uniform love their families and dear little children, life of the party, fun to be with, trained killers. Many of whom, not all, but many discover too late that killing and being killed isn't the fun, fun, fun they thought it was. And to facilitate this glorification of trained killing, the government has allotted $500 million to expand the Train Killer Memorial in Canberra. While at the National Archives, for instance, unique audiovisual items are being lost because they lack funding for preservation, and the National Gallery is at risk of insolvency as its acquisition budget is being used for daily operations. Still, we put to train killing memorial supremo Brendan Neal to killing son, uh, this 500 mil will allow us to acknowledge the invasion of Trubluosi itself, the arrival of the first boat people, the colonial wars on our soil against the indigenous people, the slaughter, the attempted genocide, the war crimes, the destruction of their way of life. When Brennan recovered with the help of the old smelling salts, he spluttered it was sacrilegious to the memory of the brave young men and women in uniform whose deeds we must commemorate to suggest the eradication of the indigenous people, the occupation of their lands, was war. Uh, There is a difference between war and resisting being civilised, he gasped. 
And he must be right, of course. There's no historical revision in our commemorations, like we now know the Vietnam anti-war movement was wrong after all. The heroic cannon fodder we sent to destroy the Vietnamese and their country on behalf of our great ally and very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, were heroes who saved this country from, uh, from, from well, well, from something like our invasions all over the world for a couple of hundred years have saved us for, from something or, or other. And if our responsible mainstream media is the protector of history, our historical memory, then the long-haired commie Greeny claims that twice during the war to end all wars, True Blue Aussie voted not to send the cannon fodder to the slaughter was clearly a myth, simply didn't happen. Or the responsible mainstream media would most certainly have celebrated their centenaries as it has celebrated every possible centenary of battles and slaughter. War. As we have suddenly discovered that China, evil, evil, hang on, they're a major trading partner. Uh, a good, good evil China is playing and playing a role in the Pacific, which it has no right to play. That's our role as directed by our very, very close friend, the US of, which is having its own troubles with, the, with True Blue Aussie stringing along, preventing China from aggressively sailing in the waters off China. The South China Sea, the misnomered South, South China Sea, which rightfully should be known as the West California Sea. And conversely, suddenly discovered we have for too long ignored our very, very close friends in the Pacific, whom we now intend to help out with a few military bases, as directed by our very, very close friend, the US of. And the Assistant Minister for Keeping China Out of the Pacific, Anne Ruston, to the US of, assured us our newfound benevolence is not about any particular country having more power or control, it's about working together and investment needs to be transparent and we can't disagree because True Blue Aussie has no interest in power or control unlike good good evil China and there's no doubt our newfound benevolence is transparent on our very 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 close friend who unlike good good evil China has no interest whatever in power or control but only in peace and tranquility the sort of peace and tranquility the weekend's nausea was all about as parliamentary democracy allowed the people to express their opinion in the US of the Republican Party sort of their version of the conservative caring business class and socialist parties here in True Blue Aussie lost control of the house blowing a of 30 or so seats are route to the Democrats. Sort of their version of the conservative caring business class and socialist parties here in True Blue Aussie. The subject of the route, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor announced, this is a huge success. A route? We know the man is illusional, but this is ridiculous. Owen Donald said he looked forward to beautiful bipartisanship. A beauty whose value he has so observed, so respected, so dedicated himself to social adhesion, to avoiding division, and his comments indicated he is prepared to practice beautiful bipartisanship as long as the other lot do exactly what he says, exactly what he wants, support everything he does, do not investigate any of his beautiful bipartisanship, uniting the nation actions and tweets, which would prove they, the Democrats, are partisan and not beautiful. Ugly, ugly partisans. The most ugly, ugly partisans ever, ever. 
bad, bad, baddest ever. And as another of his appointments headed out the door, mainly because he did nothing about the investigation into Donald, although, might I say, why is this investigation taking about 200 years, give or take? Why couldn't Donald just repeat his investigation into his recent Supreme Court appointment and give it about an hour and a half? But anyway, heads out the door, Donald discovered one particular journalist, Jim Acosta, one of the huge contingent of fake news, biggest enemies of the USI, was a rude, terrible person who had the audacity to accost a poor Donald by asking him a question at a press conference. Who ever heard? He got his just desserts when Donald chopped up his credentials and Donald, who just so respects women, with whom, as he boasts, humbly, he can do whatever he likes, was shocked this rude, terrible person had touched a young female intern, that is, an unpaid worker, Donald ordered to wrestle the microphone off this enemy of the people. But apologies to Donald. The Attorney General who walked out the door was not sacked. He resigned. After Donald tweeted, he had resigned. Bit of a surprise to the Attorney General. He opened his resignation letter with, as requested by you. And Donald thanked him and wished him well. I'm sick of saying it, but Donald remains a major, major threat to satire. All that he actually said and did. Connection here. Back here as former Socialist Party Big Supremo and failed would-be Big Supremo Mark Liam Lowe becomes, becomes leader, brackets temporary, of that appalling Hoonsun's one notion lot in his home state. I say temporary because who has ever been more than temporary in the political love game with that appalling Hoonsun? And there's the connection. They compete for who can get rid of their latest appointment and political love child the faster. Anyway, Mark told us... I'm not perfect. And goodness, how disillusioning. We, we've never noticed that. But the announcement prompted Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist with the bolt through his head to inform us that a force between Liam Lowe and the Socialist Party was 100% the fault of the Socialist Party, which had veered so sharply to the left. And we thank him for informing us of that, because that too had escaped us completely. While on facts and information which have escaped us completely, we must thank the NAB, the Profits Bank, Supremo Andrew Thor, Burn Your Wealth, for a deeply thought-through analysis of how come the bank's practices have been so exposed by the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission, which Andrew told us a year ago was absolutely unnecessary, a socialist plot, the politics of envy, class warfare. Well, now... Andrew concedes the banks may have, just possibly may have, put profits before people. Oh, thank you, Andrew, for throwing up a possibility we'd never have thought of. A bolt from the blue. He said he had opposed the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission because he didn't realise all these things were going on. And, and how would he? He's only paid several million a year to run the place. Finally, speaking of the this-is-ridiculous things like Donald celebrating a huge success, perhaps he thinks the biggest ever loss ever, ever is a huge success. In that US of election, Nevada elected a brothel owner who has been dead for more than a month. We've all heard of the dead voting, but getting elected? This is ridiculous. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy and, as I say most weeks, 
You can say good morning to Mr Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for City Limits. For many people in the Philippines, the memories of the brutal Marcos era do not fade with time. But the reality for all Filipinos is that era was never far under the surface and now with the current President Duterte, it's there for all to see. There are estimates of up to 30,000 Filipinos, mainly poor, murdered in the so-called drug wars and increasingly the target for extrajudicial killings is on peasants, environmental and union activists, political prisoners, indigenous activists and even those who defend the targeted. The pro bono lawyers, human rights lawyers, are themselves the target of cold-blooded killings. The outrage is being widely felt and here in Australia organisations of Filipinas are expressing their concerns and one such organisation is the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association and I'm speaking with May Kotsakis from the association. May I'd like to read two quotes first. By calling yourselves the people's lawyer you have made a remarkable choice. You decided not to remain in the sidelines. Where human rights are assaulted, you have chosen to sacrifice the comfort of the fence for the dangers of the battlefield. But only those who choose to fight on the battlefields live beyond irrelevance. And that was Supreme Court Justice Renato Puno in his message to the NUPL founding Congress in 2007. After long years of experience as a people's lawyer, I can honestly say it has been a treasured journey of self-fulfilment and a rewarding achievement. I know it will be the same for all others who chose to tread this path. And that was Attorney Romeo Cabulong, NUPL founding chairperson in his address to the 5th Congress of Lawyers in Asia-Pacific in 2010. May, can you begin by talking about the NUPL, the National Union of People's Lawyers? When was it established? The NUPL, or the National Union of People's Lawyers, it is a uh, group of lawyers who work pro bono, who help those who are being you know, attacked, those that are victims of uh, human rights violations, any victims who cannot afford to pay the poor people. So most of the members, or all of the members of NUPL, provide services for free to victims of human rights violations or victims of abuse. The recent or the, the most, uh, the latest victim, who is a, a member of NUPL, attorney Ben Ramos, he was actually representing the families and friends of Sagay Nine, we call them Sagay Nine. They were the nine peasant workers who were massacred in Sagay City in uh, Negros Occidental. So, Attorney Ben Ramos was representing them on a pro bono. They are being attacked, uh, according to Gil, actually, to Gil uh, Boringer. He has a report. There has been 34 lawyers already that has been murdered since Duterte has been in power in 2016. But there has been more than 40 attacks, although the other attacks were not fatal. So today, uh, lawyers who are also human rights advocates are being you know, extrajudicially killed by 
this uh, current regime. Is it in particular areas of the Philippines or is it just all over? No, all over. All over. The human rights violation is all over. And um, most of the victims are activists. Um, this is aside from the, from the victims of the war on drugs, which is now almost 30,000 according to some reports. The attacks is made not only on lawyers, these are the human rights advocates, the activists, even uh, religious workers, priests, ministers. There has been priests that have been killed in the northern part of the Philippines. So it, it is not just on a specific area, but all over the Philippines. What can be done to defend the defenders? There has been a, some statements uh, defending the defenders. One of the work that uh, we are doing, which it is really good that you are sort of uh, you are interviewing me, is seeking support from international friends because they cannot be attacked. We are outside the Philippines, so like writing letters or calling the attention of the Philippine government, making a statement in support, and uh, even writing to the Australian government to seek their support to call the attention of the Philippine government because Australia is giving military aid to the Philippines, supporting the Philippine government. So just like what Sister Pat said, that uh, Australia should start, you know, uh, taking responsibility what what is happening there. That's another thing that we can write to the Australian government to ask them to call on the attention of the Philippine government, talk to them about this human rights violation because it's really getting very, very... Uh, horrible at the moment. When you say there's been 34 lawyers killed since Duterte came to power, I'd imagine that there are many more who are willing to take their place. Uh, yes, actually uh, that is one thing that uh, maybe the government does not realise, that um, the more they do these killings or these attacks, the more people are joining the um, struggles, the more people are becoming really, because say if one person is killed, that person may have 10 or more members of the family that, uh, you know, become activists themselves or you know, that want to act or to do something about the uh, unlawful murder of their family. So some, some people are saying that the 30 is the biggest um, recruiter for the activist movement. <laughs> Another Australian connection, do you also find these lawyers helping the people against what's happening in the in the mining concessions where Australian companies are um, oh, yeah. mining? Yes, the NUPL and there are other lawyers as well that are helping. They are also helping those that are in the mining areas like the in the deep view where Oceana Gold is located, that is an um, Australian mining company. And there are lots of mining mining uh, areas as well in this southern Philippines, in Mindanao. And they are among those, the, these areas are among those where human rights violation is even greater because the areas that they are mining are mostly residents of the indigenous indigenous Filipinos, and they are being dislocated or harassed, abused, you know. So the indigenous Filipinos are trying to to fight for, they are fighting for their rights. There are lawyers that are supporting them. 
but they're also supporting people in the urban areas as well. Yes, yes. Like the trump-up charges or the, the detention of many activists, human rights defenders, on trump-up charges, you know, or made-up cases is very rampant in the Philippines. So there are lots of activists that are in prison. They are detained. And uh, it is really, it needs a lot of work. They need a lot of support, not even even finances, because they have to be bailed out. Some of the charges are even unbailable. Cases have to be argued. So lawyers are really required, needed on those cases. Even the um, Big Blood Blood is a consultant in the peace negotiations. He was arrested uh, a week ago. And Big Blood Blood, and there is an agreement between the government of the Philippines and the National Democratic Front of the Philippines that these consultants for the peace negotiation are not supposed to be arrested. There is an agreement. But they, the government has, has violated that so many times. So they are supposed to be have immunity, you know. There is an immunity guarantee for these people. But the government is not respecting those agreements. So like him, he is in prison now for a trump-up charges. He is charged with having guns on his possession, you know. And according to his wife, he doesn't even touch those <laughs> guns because of his illness. So like those cases lawyers will be required to defend them because they are not really rich. I mean, most of those people that are being attacked, they are either full-time activists or they are poor, so they cannot afford to pay lawyers. So without these lawyers, members of the National Union of People's Lawyers, they won't be able to handle those, you know, the case against them. They need people, uh, advocates to support them. And I'd imagine that the conditions in jail are pretty deplorable. Overcrowded. Not only that they are detained, there are cases of torture as well. And um, harassment to their family. Most of them are not even allowed to be visited by their family for days. Not allowed to call a lawyer or use a telephone for days. They don't know what are they are being charged because there are no arrest warrants. The whole Philippines is like already under martial law, even though the martial law was only declared in Mindanao, which is the southern part of the Philippines. The whole Philippines is like it's like under martial law now. How would you describe the situation under Duterte as compared to Marcos? Oh, there are lots of descriptions already in several statements that uh, this is even worse. Just in two years of his tenure, the extrajudicial killings is already reaching more than 20,000. With Marcos, that is his whole tenure of about 20 years. This is the worst that, uh, you know, that's happening in the Philippines when it comes to human rights relations. Moving on to Sister Pat Fox. She's now back home in Australia. You were at the airport at the weekend to welcome her here. Describe the scene when she arrived. Oh, it was a mixture of sadness and happiness, you know. Because we, we understand how Sister Pat would felt, and she was actually sharing with us uh, last Sunday because we, we invited her to a small gathering. She is really sad, which we felt as well, because she has to leave the Philippines where she has lived for 
more than 27 years. And she said that there were lots of people who brought her to the airport. You know, there was a caravan or a march that brought her to the airport. But she said that as soon as she reached, she hasn't even reached the airport, she was already cordoned by police. So the police already surrounded her, so none of her friends can even, you know, hug her. They were not even able to say goodbye to her because she was already cordoned, not to protect her, but not to allow those, uh, you know, because I don't think anyone will try to to attack Sister Pat, especially the, the people. So she was cordoned, and the people were not able to come closer to her. So she was really sad because she said she wasn't even able to say bye or hug them. So a lot of people were crying when she left. So she was very sad, but she said, and we also feel very happy that uh, she's here because she's committed to campaigning for the human rights in the Philippines. She said that she cannot be silenced. And now that she is away from the Philippine government, she has more freedom to speak out. And I said that we are going to help her, you know, because uh, now that she is here, she has no, at the moment, uh, we are the, the group that she, she is working with. I'd imagine that there are others in the Philippines who are also facing deportation for sticking up for the people. I don't have any record as of now, but uh, some foreigners, I mean, even in Australia, there are three, aside from Sister Pat, who are black pitched Bill Bonder was one of, is one of them. Uh, when he arrived in the airport, he wasn't allowed to, to leave the airport, and he was deported. And uh, there are other two. Peter Murphy is another one who is blacklisted, cannot enter the Philippines, and Len Cooper is uh, also blacklisted. He also cannot enter the Philippines. So while they are on those blacklists, they cannot go to the Philippines. Mr. Pat is blacklisted as well. So there are four Australians now. And I imagine there are others from other countries as well. Yes, there were several deportations as well from other countries. I don't have the names of them at the moment, but yes, there were several deportations. Who are those who are, will carry on her work now she's back in Australia, back in the Philippines? Did she have a group? Yes, yes, she was working. Um, Sister Pat is actually a member of the Karapatan National Council. Karapatan is the... Um, independent human rights organization there. It's an alliance or a, a network of various human rights organizations and programs. That's why Karapatan was invited to, is invited to attend the United Nations Human Rights Commission because of that. No? Karapatan is the English term for that is rights. Karapatan is the rights of, you know. And uh, it is recognized by the United Nations as the, you know, independent human rights group in the Philippines. They record and follow through all uh, uh, violations. They have a lot of um, documentations. Although we were told that there are still lots of uh, human rights violations, killing, harassment that are not recorded because they are in the countryside and sometimes they are not, you know, reachable by uh, the advocates or the workers. Thanks. May, if you'd like to repeat what you said before about encouraging people to write and express their concerns and even more than concerns about what's happening in the Philippines. Yes, um, yeah, we would like to request, you know, request Australians and non-Australians who are living here in Australia to 
to join us in campaigning for, you know, to stop the human rights violation in the Philippines. They can do, you know, several things, join us. Sometimes we have a picket or we have a um, rally. Sometimes we do that in front of the state library. We also do some petitions and uh, writing letter, even just writing letter, open letter, so we can sort of uh, circulate it and publicize it. We also would like to invite everyone to our human rights uh, event, which we are going to hold on December 9 at the Sedan Scout Hall in Sedon, near Footscray. So we are going to start at uh, 2.30, and Sister Pat is one of our speakers. We have two speakers, Sister Pat and also Lydia Torp, who is the member for North Coast. So uh, Sister Pat will speak generally about her experience in the Philippines, the human rights situation there while Lydia Torp is going to speak about the treaty for the indigenous, yeah, and the indigenous rights as well. To invite everyone to come. Do you have the address for that scout hall and the time? Yes, uh, the address is 1A Bel Air Avenue, Bel Air Avenue, Sedon. That is just about two minutes walk. You can actually, you know, two minutes walk from the Sedon train station. It's December 9 at 2.30 p.m. Thank you, May. Thank you, Jan. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with May Kosakis from the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association. And you can look them up. So it's a web page there, Facebook. And that date and time on the 9th of December, the Seddon Scout Hall, 1A, 1A Belair Avenue, Seddon. And it's at 2.30 in the afternoon. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. And it's welcome to Tuesday Home Time to recently retired from a long career as a GP in Canberra to take over once again the presidency of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, replacing Dr Margie Beavis, and I'm talking about Dr Sue Wareham. Sue, was a career in the health profession something you had always had in mind as you were growing up? For quite a long time growing up, I'd considered working as a general practitioner and that was the role that I ended up in. So it was something that was suited to me emotionally and in other respects, I think, I guess because it's seen as one of those helping professions, but also where one has the privilege of contact with people and the problems that they face in daily life. So uh, so it really is a, a privilege, something that I'd, I'd drifted to in my, in my teen years growing up. From doctoring or from the medical profession to peace, how did that happen? For me, it was a natural progression, although it wasn't something that was an integral part of my family life growing up. But working as a health professional, one has to look at the bigger picture and certainly in general practice, the essence of it is how can I help this person right in front of me right now? 
but at some stage the profession as a whole has to look at the bigger picture and what are the factors that influence health in our community and in our in our country and in the world generally and the thing that made the biggest impact on me which it probably did for a lot of people around the late 1970s early 1980s in Australia which is when I was was a young young adult just getting established as a general practitioner was the nuclear weapons issue and that was huge news around the world especially in Europe Russia United States at that time and a lot of that awareness came through to Australia of course and working as a health professional and learning about the nature and the impact of nuclear weapons had a huge impact on me because I couldn't reconcile these weapons with anything that I did as a health professional in medicine we do our utmost for the benefit of one person we can put a lot of resources into preserving and or improving one person's life but with nuclear weapons it was just a matter of wiping out tens hundreds of thousands of lives even millions of lives at a time so there was just nothing about nuclear weapons that was acceptable from a health point of view and where did you go with those concerns what was the next step well i got involved and that was about the time that the medical association for prevention of war was forming in australia in 1981 and globally in 1980 uh, was the formation of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which is our international parent body, and IPPNW was formed because of common concerns held between, primarily between American and Russian doctors at the time, but then the movement spread globally and was spreading awareness about the health impact of nuclear weapons and the need to get rid of these weapons. So that was what got me involved in the 1980s and then because the problem hasn't been resolved then I'm still here working on that issue about 40 years or so later. But being aware of the nuclear weapons problem and reading and advocating in relation to that, one thinks also a lot about the issue of militarism generally because nuclear weapons didn't arise in a vacuum and they don't continue in a vacuum now. So there's the whole issue of militarism why do we accept war as a necessity why do we engage in war so readily some people might dispute that comment that we engage in war readily but in essence we do so why do we as a community allow that to happen and what are all the other effects along the way of the wars that we're engaged in right now wars that don't thus far involve nuclear weapons but have terrible impacts on people in the countries in which we fight our wars and on Australian service people who fight them. So there are a lot of issues beyond the nuclear weapons issue that I personally have developed an interest in and which Medical Association for Prevention of War advocates on. There must be a lot of like-minded people. Have you managed to or did you go overseas and meet a lot of these people who were also fighting for the, the issues that you were? Yes, I have had that privilege several times most of our work is here in in Australia and for climate reasons we need to be careful about not overdoing international travel these days but 
collaborating with other people in other countries is of course a really important part of, of what we do. So yes, there has been an element of that and International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War, IPPNW, has an international congress every two to three years and those are terrific events for talking with colleagues around the world who have exactly the same concerns that we have here in Australia about the impact of wars and I've just the past week or so was at a board meeting of IPPNW in Boston where we were progressing these same ideas about tackling the nuclear weapons issue and about reducing the impact of wars and militarism generally. And of course the focus of MAPW has been the health consequences of war. Yes, and that's where we continue to advocate because that's where our expertise is. We don't pretend to be experts on other aspects such as military strategy or geopolitics and all of those sorts of things. And of course one has to be aware and learn as much as one can about those other things. But we in MAPW are not experts on those and we don't claim to be. But the important thing that we do is to elevate the health concerns so that they are really presented as key elements in the issue of war and the issue of nuclear weapons, the health and humanitarian consequences of decisions that are made. And that's why IPPNW has been so successful, was awarded Nobel Peace Prize back in 1985. And it's the reason that the more recent work, ICANN International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which MAPW launched about a decade ago. It's the reason that ICANN has been so successful also and was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize last year, 2017. That success has been based on presenting the health and humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons. So I think we need to remember that the effects on humans, on ordinary people of weapons are a really legitimate and important focus for advocacy and we shouldn't shouldn't pretend that uh, these things are less important than what our political leaders say about why we need to go to war, etc. We need to keep presenting the health and humanitarian impacts of any decisions that are proposed or made by our governments. And of course connected to that is the environmental impacts of war. Yes, indeed. And MAPW has done quite a bit of work on this um, at various times over the years also and it's a hugely important area of the impact of warfare because unless we have a healthy and sustainable environment then we can't have a healthy and sustainable human populations. So yes, we've written and advocated on the health impacts, uh, sorry, the environmental impacts of warfare and there are a lot of those whether one looks at the destruction, the direct destruction of warfare, the toxicity that's left behind after armies or other forces go to war, the fossil fuel usage that's used up in war and in preparations for war, unexploded ordnance, all of these things, the environmental impacts of war, not to mention the environmental legacy that nuclear weapons leave, are a hugely important area of advocacy in this day and age. Many people are very concerned about the militarisation of Australia now, the, the way that our governments are pushing that area of our economy, and it's a huge part of our economy now, the amount of money that's going into weapons, 
to manufacturers over the seas of making these weapons and also the build-up of our armed forces who are then all sent overseas, or most of them are sent overseas to fight someone else's war. Yes, militarisation in Australia and militarisation elsewhere is a very major major concern for MAPW and also I think for a lot of other people in the community. And I'm thinking particularly of Australia's World War I commemoration and the fact that it, while respectful commemoration of those who died in World War I, especially as we commemorate the centenary, that respectful commemoration is very important, but money that we have spent on commemorating World War I in Australia is much, much more than any other country on the planet has spent. So we really have been in the process of glorifying war. Our soldiers are held up as the biggest heroes in our country and held up as playing a more significant role than many other people who've done outstanding things in civilian sectors during our history. So the um, military history is being, really being overplayed, especially during the World War I commemoration period, and to the point where fighting wars is now regarded by a lot of people as part of our identity as Australians. The national message, the official message really has been that fighting wars is what Australians do well, we're good at it and we're going to keep doing it. Australia has been at war for continuously for 17 years since 2001 and there's no end in sight for Australia being at war so the very notion of our country being at war has really become normalised. People don't tend to think twice about it anymore. It's what we do as Australians and we really need to tackle that and get rid of the notion that war is a normal part of human life. And of course part of that is the glorification of the Australian War Memorial and that seems to be increasing all the time. Just as an aside, I have a friend whose 11-year-old grandson, the school grade, went for a five-day trip to Canberra and one of those days is a visit to the War Memorial and this is an 11-year-old. Yes, I think that's pretty standard. The War Memorial promotes itself more or less as a tourist attraction. It's something that people should do when they're in Canberra and yes, it's heavily promoted to school groups. There's a, an area within the War Memorial called the Discovery Zone which is specifically for children and a lot of school groups go through there. And the children are encouraged to basically play. Um, there's a, a replica World War One trench, well it's not a replica World War One trench because it's very sanitised, it's very clean and neat and sort of fun in quote marks. So they can play in a World War One trench, they can play in a, a Vietnam era helicopter and pretend they're hunting down Viet Cong, they can play in a Cold War era submarine replica and pretend that they're hunting Soviets. So this really is, I mean, it's almost literally making war into a game. Now, why would we want to do this with our young people? Why encourage them to think that war is a game and that war is exciting? It's not exciting and it's not a game. And I think we should be, our education of young people about war should be far more responsible than that. I think it's a dereliction of duty to present war in that way to young people. Can you talk for a few moments about the promotion of arms sales overseas? 
Yes, Australian governments hope that Australia will be one of the top ten weapons exporters. Really is, well, it's probably on the one hand a bit of a forlorn hope. Experts say that there's no way that we will actually reach that status. But I think perhaps a more important issue is why do we want to? Why do we want to be basing our economy on the industry that relies on war? Now, if we're relying on selling weapons, that means we're relying on regions being unstable, we're relying on countries being either at war or at risk of war, wars threatening, all these sorts of things which are really anathema to peace. So we can't on the one hand, Australia, we being Australia, claim to be a peace-loving nation, but then on the other hand, basing our economy on industries that rely on war and instability. One of the very troubling things, and getting back to the issue of the Australian War Memorial, is that the War Memorial itself accepts money from weapons manufacturers. And this, a lot of people, including in MAPW, regard as highly offensive, that at the same time that we're commemorating the terrible losses that Australia has incurred during war, not terrible compared to the, not on the same scale as other countries, but still terrible nevertheless for those involved in their families. At the same time that we're commemorating these losses, we're promoting the brand names of the companies that actually profit from the loss. This is offensive and it's something that really needs to stop. Even on Remembrance Day, the Australian War Memorial has a partnership with Lockheed Martin, which is the world's biggest weapons manufacturer, a partnership and sponsorship arrangement whereby Lockheed Martin provides some funding to help with Australia's World War I and Remembrance Day commemorations. This just shouldn't be happening. We need to separate out the vested interests from our commemoration of war. These same weapons manufacturers increasingly involved in our universities all over Australia? Yes, they are, and that's another worrying trend, all part of the militarisation of Australian society. Yes, in a number of the state capitals, some of our biggest universities are involved or getting involved in sponsorship arrangements with weapons companies. So while on the one hand our universities are inadequately funded, and that's a problem in itself, on the other hand, when that happens, the universities, of course, need to look for funding and if big corporations are offering some funding, then that's going to be quite attractive to the universities. But the problem is that there's really no free lunch. So if companies are putting money into a, a university or another educational institution, and even our schools, then they're going to want something in return. The end result is likely to be a skewing of the the courses, the curriculums, a little towards what the weapons company want and that's of course good students in the STEM subject, science, engineering, maths, that sort of thing and it's going to be, again, while the universities can be attracted to weapons company sponsorship in the same way students can be attracted to working in the weapons companies because if those companies have the financial resources to offer the best resources, the best laboratories or the best career prospects or whatever it might be, then the students are going to be more attracted to that than to industries that are not so well funded. So it's a skewing of, our, of where students might see their future lying. And also what we used to have, they used to call it the Avalon Air Show. I think it's now 
more correctly named the Avalon Arms Fair and that's another place where families are encouraged to go to show the children the wonders of well, they're war machines, aren't they? Yes, they are. And there's the airfare and the arms show, which are held in conjunction with one another. But yes, the promotion of the air show, at least, is pretty shameful. While these are enormously powerful military machines that are on, on display, and it's promoted as family fun, it's promoted as exciting, come and feel the excitement, all this sort of thing. And again, we need we need to get back to the reality that war is not exciting and it shouldn't be presented as an exciting concept to young people. So this, again, is pretty irresponsible promotion and irresponsible concept of where we want our nation to be heading. One of the other worrying trends is that getting back to the issue of Australia becoming a major weapons exporter, is that the weapons companies and government in support of them promote the notion of jobs. We always hear that whatever major weapons project is being promoted, it's all about jobs, creating jobs for the people. Now, of course, we need jobs, but the evidence indicates that if we put the same amount of funding government support into other sectors of society such as health or education or public transport or looking after the environment then we would in fact get a lot more jobs than we get from big big weapons projects. The jobs in major weapons projects tend to be at the high tech end. They don't tend so much to be across all sectors of the community unlike jobs in health and education and, and other sectors of the economy. So we hear a lot about jobs, but I think when we hear this message about jobs, 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 we need to say, well, we would be getting more jobs in other sectors of the community if we put the same amount of funding into them. And another insidious um, connection with the arms manufacturers is the Invictus Games, which is just completed, and the arms manufacturers were in there supporting that as well, sponsoring that as well. Yes, it was a big promotional gig for the weapons company and none of us would deny the importance of looking after veterans and of looking after their interests and promoting their healthy integration into civilian society that of course is hugely important but the Invictus Games seems to have been more about promoting the sponsors, some of the weapons companies, Lockheed Martin uh, again and others, Raytheon um, I think and and others and one of the interesting aspects of the Invictus Games also which one, uh, one of our MAPW researchers Michelle Fay has looked at is the fact that not all the athletes in the Invictus Games had their injuries inflicted by war and that's an aspect which hasn't been brought out. So while the games were promoted as, quote, for our wounded warriors, uh, end of quote, not all of that wounding actually was in the course of war. It wasn't all quite uh, as it was presented. What happened at Canberra Airport, or what still happens at Canberra Airport with promotion of arms manufacturers? Well, the weapons companies are still there. Just for the listener, one of the campaigns that Medical Association for Prevention of War has 
had going for several years is to get rid of the huge military advertisements at Canberra Airport when people come in and wait for their baggage, especially at the Qantas end, uh, big advertising panels for various weapon systems. So that's still there. It fluctuates from time to time. And there was a, a big ad there recently for the Invictus Games when they were on. So this, again, is another pretty unsettling part of the militarisation of Australian society. When you come into our nation's capital, airport, beautiful city, Canberra, it's got a huge amount to offer, a lot that could be advertised and should be advertised at Canberra Airport. But people come in here and what do they see? Advertisement. Depending on the time and the year, it might be an advertisement for some um, some warship or fighter jet, F-35 fighter jet or Rhine metal tank or whatever it might be. This is a pretty shoddy introduction to Canberra and it's, um, it is part of this militarisation which really doesn't get questions as much as it needs to be. Thanks so much, Sue. And I'll just finish off with a positive note with the signing up to the UN nuclear weapons ban. How is that going? Yes, that is a positive note, Jan. And that's going well. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which we call the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty, will come into effect when it has 50 countries that have signed and ratified. And it's been just over a year now that it's been opened for signature. So there are currently 69 countries that have signed and there are 19 that have ratified, which means they're party to the treaty now. Still about 30-odd ratifications to go, but we know of quite a number of countries that have that process in train, but it hasn't yet been completed. And ratification does take a little while. It's not just a matter of signing a treaty, it's a matter of putting into place any domestic legislation that might be needed so the country is in compliance with the treaty. So we're confident that the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty will have the 50 required ratifications and will come into effect within the next couple of years. We don't know exactly when, but we know that there are, uh, we know of countries that are in the process, quite a number of countries. So it's going to come into effect and Australia is going to have to decide for how long do we hold out against this really important disarmament treaty. We're not likely to hold out forever, so it would really be good if the Australian government decided to get on the right side of history and sign up and ratify early on rather than at the last gasp. Thanks, Sue. Thank you very much, Jen. And I was speaking there with Dr Sue Wareham, who is the current President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. This is 3CR and it's 4.55. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Today, the second part of my interview with Fra Hughes. Fra is from Belfast, Northern Ireland, and is one of those who has taken his activism right to Palestine and a number of times, as he details in his diary, an activist's tale, My Walk with Palestine. In part one, Fra talked about growing up in Belfast, the 60s and 70s, 
and then later learning about the situation for Palestinians in their own country and eventually his first visit to Gaza. And this is where we pick up his story. Tell me about some of the Palestinians you met in Gaza back then. Well, it's funny because you've only there for three days, John. So if you imagine now, we've, we've, we've got a convoy. So all our vehicles were taken over from Latakia to al Bay. The organisation hired a uh, roll-on-roll-off ferry of some description of freight ferry to take it over. We all flew over. Then we rejoined with the vehicles. But there'd been trouble on a previous convoy between the Egyptian military and some of the people on the convoy. So when we actually flew in, we were met kind of by uh, Egyptian rad troops. So while you're thinking the real enemy here for the Palestinian people is the Zionist entity and the apartheid state of Israel, yeah, I was quite shocked at, uh, at the force that was shown to us. Now, we, we weren't physically harmed. There was no brutality, but there was definitely an hour off, step out of line. We're putting the helmets on and you're getting battened because the guys were walking about with battens. So they're very reminiscent of the early days here, kind of three-foot-long wooden battens, and these guys were wearing like crash helmets or carrying their crash helmets. We get into Gaza and we stayed at the Palestine Hotel, which was specially open. You imagine the country's under siege. I mean, there's no, there's, there's no tourism. There's no, there are visiting delegations from time to time. So I think there were three hotels and only one was ever open on a semi-permanent basis. But they opened the hotel. Then, you know, we were taken out for a couple of days. We donated our stuff to the, the hospital and had meetings with the hospital. Uh, and that was amazing because I'm technically uh, an anaesthetic technician. I worked for 14 years at the Ulster Hospital in Dundonald. So when we were walking around the theatres at the LA the hospital, chatting away to them, and they were asking me to be a fancy come over and working and volunteering in the hospital. So we went around, we, we met some of the doctors, uh, we, met, we met the PFLP delegation, because uh, that would be my politics, you know. Our translators, uh, one of them worked in the Al Amal Orphanage, which is in uh, Gaza City, and uh, ultimately we were able to fundraise ten thousand pounds to buy solar panels for the orphanage about five years ago, I think. So we didn't really, you know, there were short meetings. I mean, I haven't met you before, John. We're chatting on the telephone. It's that kind of thing. It's almost like a, like a meeting, and then on to have lunch, and then meet some other people, and then another delegation, and you know, see some of the schools that have been bombed, and go down to the no man's land that's uh, been extended by the Zanis State into the farmers' fees and stuff. So it was very, very, very short and very hectic and quite draining in a way, you know, because it's a long journey to finally get there and then you're like, go, 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 go for the three days there and then straight out and back up to Cairo, which is six hours away from uh, Gaza. And then I flew to Paris and then we had like five hours in Paris to fly to Dublin. Quite intense those last few days. But in a sense, you were lucky to get there because not many people get through now. Absolutely. Yes, I tried to get through in, I think it was 2014, whenever the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, Morsi uh, were democratically elected by the people in Egypt. Uh, the siege on the Egyptian side, you see, obviously we, we must remember that Israel's imposing the, the siege on their side of the border and in the Mediterranean Sea uh, at the seaports in Gaza, but... You know, it's the Rafa border crossings run by the Egyptian military. And, you know, if they just opened that, you could have as much food and commerce coming out. Gaza could, Gaza could literally blossom and bloom if the Egyptians would open their side of the siege. They allow free access of people, free, free movement of goods and finances in and out of Gaza. They're as guilty as uh, anybody else. 
Well, they're being supported by the US too. They're getting billions of dollars every year to make sure that Gaza stays where it is. I won't forget one of the times that CC shortly after the coup appeared on television. And I either saw this on television or, uh, or read it in the media. And he publicly said, why won't America come out and back me? And I thought, hello, they've given him the green light for the coup. And he's asked them to come out publicly and support him. And about two days later, here was the Secretary of State come out and said, Egypt needs stability. And we recognise the new government as the people to bring stability to the country. And I thought, there you go. The Democrat, regardless of what people think about the Muslim Brotherhood, the first real democratic elections in Egypt in, in many decades under uh, military dictatorship. And that was led from the people in Tahrir Square, a real revolution of the people. And there is America, among others, I'm sure Israel, and probably now behind Saudi and other uh, countries, were all behind giving Sisi the green light to uh, take over. And sure, it's got worse. He's put like a moat around their side of uh, Gaza, and the borders being nearly permanently closed. Although I know people who have come in and out, but I, I think the borders open if you have like an official delegation. But you know, it's not open for Gazans to come out or for anybody else just to go in. When did you decide to go to the West Bank and what was that trip like? One thing leads on to another. I mean, as, as I've written a book, you know, your, your, your life's one chapter after another. So, you know, first I got involved with the convoy to Gaza in 2010 and then from that Viva Palestina were having like a, a summer, summer camp in Beirut in the American University in 2011. So I went to that and then I was involved in this group, Palestine Aid, which grew out of some of the people who had been on the convoy uh, in 2010. So we were doing a bit of fundraising and we were doing a, raising a bit of awareness. And then I think it was in 2012 that I thought, well, I've been to Gaza. And funnily enough, people on the West Bank were going, I mean, they're, all, they're obviously 100 percent in support of their of their brothers and sisters and their comrades in Gaza but I mean people in the West Bank were saying you know we're, we're here too like they're stealing our land every day they're imprisoning our children you, you know there's settler violence and there's state violence and everybody's looking to Gaza because they're being bombed and that's correct but don't forget us so I thought right I'll try and go over so my partner now my fiance I said to her listen do you fancy going over and we joined an organised tour of the West Bank which included planting olive trees in Hebron, in the southern hills in Hebron, and visiting East Jerusalem. Uh, then we did some stuff on our own. We just went off to Ramallah and whatever. But uh, that was eye-opening. That's when we really got to meet some Palestinians, the people leading the tours and stuff. And I've never met a, a friendlier, warmer group of people. You know, you could be cynical and go, oh, you're a foreigner. People are trying to get you on their side and they're being sweet. But I've never met people just as genuine and warm friend and welcoming as the, the, actually the people under oppression and the people occupied in Palestine. And you also got to see the reality of life in Syria and Jordan. Yes, as part of the yeah, well, there was another convoy that I went on in uh, 2013, if I'm getting the dates correct, man, that was Bradford to Gaza. This is on a much, much, much smaller scale. When we first went to Gaza in 2010, we went through Syria, as I mentioned, and we stayed in attack for 16 days. But this time in 2013, so 2010 was before the war on Syria, okay, which started in 2011. What happened was a lot of the people, or some of the people who had been on the 
convoy in 2010. We're going to go on a convoy in 2013 until they heard it was going through Syria. And then some people, I assume, for safety concerns, decided that, you, you know, that was maybe a bridge too far because of the war in Syria. And unfortunately, then people started taking sides in the conflict itself, which I assume maybe that's just human nature. People took sides with the Palestinians and then some people were taking sides against the government in Syria and decided that they wouldn't travel. I, I was contacted, I think, more on the basis of, you know, we're kind of stuck here. Can, can you help out? We'll have vehicles, but some of the people have uh, pulled out from going through Syria. So I had to give it, I had to give it serious thought because, you know, I thought that that's that's a possibility there that you could end up in, in serious bother. But I thought all along that true solidarity comes from standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody. And if they face this threat of violence every day, and I'm only facing it for a couple of days when I'm there, that's a risk I'm willing to take. I'm not, not going to be a martyr. I'm not trying to pretend I'm, I'm brave. I'm not trying to pretend I don't care about my life or my family or my friends or people who care for me. But I feel strongly enough that if people are facing this every day of their lives and they have the courage, I can have the courage for a couple of days to face what they face. So we went through in 2013, we stayed in Tartus. I had a military escort because of like ISIS and Daesh and our news or something, whatever other flag of convenience the West was using to balkanize and destroy Syria. We were there for uh, three days, but again, a, a fantastic welcome and people making sure that we were kept safe, actually to the point where the military blocked off the streets in and around the hotel where we stayed overnight to make sure they put their lives in harm's way to protect us. And it's, it's something I'm, I'm very grateful for that soldiers of the Syrian Arab army would uh, take that risk to protect foreigners in their country when you know they're busy fighting a Western-inspired insurrection in their own country. That's five years ago now. How have you kept your solidarity with Palestine alive during these last five years? It's a good question because, you know, I was very motivated when I first came back from uh, Gaza and stuff. You see, you see, that's why people need to go. I would encourage anybody in the world who's any, even a passing interest in us, just go over to the West Bank, just wander around, go to Bethlehem, go to Ramallah, go to Hebron especially, have a wee look at just what's happening, don't listen to the propaganda from the pulpit and the newspapers and the, and the mainstream media. And go with a closed mind if you want, but you'll soon get it open when you see the reality on the ground of an, of an imperial white European colonization of Palestine, the same as you've had in the Americas and Australia and Canada, and the indigenous people are, are burst to the side, the colonizers take like, all the resources to themselves. So, uh, you know, there was Gaza in 2010, there was Lebanon 2011, there was the West Bank 2012, there was another convoy 2013. Then I tried to get back into Gaza on a solo run in 2014, which was a bit, which was a bit kind of crazy with hindsight because I was told I would get in and the borders was open and everything was, everything was okay to go. And I got myself all the way from Dublin to Cairo and Cairo down to Gaza and got to the Rafa border crossing to be told I couldn't get in because I didn't have the correct paperwork. I had to go all the way back up to Cairo and then I ended up in Tahrir Square. That was an incredible journey for about a week in itself. So that's that's 2014. Then we were still kind of holding wee meetings and doing wee talks and I would still attend solidarity protests and that's what that's what I'm still doing. In fact, you know, we had a protest there last week when uh, Hillary Clinton was in Belfast. She was receiving a doctorate in law 
for her contribution to peace in Northern Ireland, which it's incredible. The woman's a war criminal and actually stood outside the university in the protest and shouted, you should be in the Hague as a war criminal, not a Belfast receiving a peace prize. And then like two days later, we had Mark Regev, who's the Australian-born UK ambassador for Israel. He's an apologist for Zionist kind of war crimes. He was in Belfast, along with the sixth president of Israel, uh, Chaim Herzog. His grandson uh, was in Belfast on a mission to... Uh, we, we, we have the Ulster Historical Society, and they put up blue plaques uh, to represent people from here who've made a contribution in whatever field it is and have become famous. And his plaque was on a house in Kirsten Park Avenue in North Belfast, and the residents demanded it be taken down. And so there's the grandson of Ken Herzog in Belfast, who himself was at the centre of a war criminal arrest warrant issued by Spain for crimes in Gaza in 2004. So he, he's wanted as a potential war criminal himself. He's in Belfast wanting a blue plaque put up uh, put back up Clifton Park Avenue. So there's a there's a diplomatic push, obviously, by the Israeli Zionist apartheid regime to move all over the world in, in, in a policy of normalisation and acceptance of a, of a rogue state. So, I mean, I, I'm still active today, and in fact, we have a group called BDS Belfast, and we're going to be outside the headquarters of the Social Democratic Labour Party, which is a small nationalist political party in Belfast that has MLAs and councillors, and they've been meeting with uh, Knesset members and stuff, so we're going down to kind of pick it and, and demand that they support BDS. So I'm still active, and as part of that, I was in Damascus last year at the World Federation of Trade Unions for four days. And next month, on the 11th of November, I will be in Lugansk, the People's Republic of Lugansk, as a monitor for the elections. So I've been invited to go over there just to, to observe that the elections, I assume, are going to be free, fair and open elections. It's Palestine and it's Yemen's another huge humanitarian story in, a, in, its, in itself, you know, and Syria being attacked uh, by Saudi Arabia and balkanized on behalf of the West. So to me, if I was to, to tie everything in, John, you know, yeah. I would go back to that. I, I would go back to that mural, which would, would be my first representation of uh, of Ireland and Palestine, which was like uh, one people, one struggle, mm-hmm. one world. But I wouldn't just put PLO or IRA in that. I would change that. I would put Ireland, mm-hmm. Palestine, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Sudan, Somalia, Venezuela, Honduras, take your pick, you know. Capitalist imperialism and colonialism is destroying the world and has done ever since ever ever since you know man discovered uh, that one person or one group of person can uh, hoard the resources that belong to everyone and then hire mercenary thugs to protect them mm-hmm. ever since that's happened we've lived in an equal uh, and unjust world so and we should do, do something about it Finally, have you been able to maintain the friendships that you've made over those various convoys and trips and also the people you're with then and also Palestinians and others that you've met along the way on those many trips that you took? Uh, I'm going to say yes and no. I mean, I would still be very close with Dr. Dr. Schaaf and I'm in good speaking friendly terms with the guys that I went on the convoy with. 
and there are people here like uh, John Hurston, who was one of the leaders on the on the convoy that I would still be in in semi regular contact with. Uh, the people I met in Palestine first time round, only because I followed up with that with the money for the orphanage and stuff, and we also raised money for three, for three, uh, we paid three scholarships at the Islamic uh, University in Gaza. So there's a guy, Musa there, Musa, Musa Shahid, uh, I'll be in contact with him. Uh, I'm in contact the odd time with people in the West Bank because I was actually, I was in the West Bank this year. I went over when I heard that, uh, when I heard that they were moving the American consulate from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the embassy, I decided that I wanted to be there uh, demonstrating against that, protesting. I thought, you know, what, what should you do uh, about the move in the embassy? So I was actually in Jerusalem on the 14th of May this year when they moved the embassy, and I'm very proud of that. I uh, paid for that myself, just using my money, headed off, and I was in Bethlehem for the right of return march. Uh, sorry, yeah, 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 the great return march on the Nakba, which was the 15th of May. And I was actually uh, there. I was there taking part in the protest, and I had my camera, and I was taking photographs of what was happening, and I uh, was hit in the leg with uh, an Israeli uh, rubber bullet. So, you know, I'm happy enough to have stood again side by side with the people of Palestine. So I've, I've kept in contact with people really who have kept in contact with me, who are also Palestinian activists. Uh, I'm going to, as I said, the People's Republic of Lugansk because I met somebody uh, who's uh, the head of one of the trade unions in Lugansk at the World Federation of Trade Unions Congress in Damascus last year. And I got to that through work with Palestine and, and work and support work with Syria. So, you know, you, you, you make connections, and I don't know about you, John, but I find in the world of activism, it's very, very, very small. I would be active in Palestine groups, uh, support for Syria. That's, you know, the Syrian Arab army, uh, defending the integrity and sovereignty of Syria. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously a socialist, and that makes me a Republican, so I'll be very close to a lot of the Republicans here at Belfast. So it, it's, it's a small world. I know an awful lot of people, and a lot of people know me, and where things converge together, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try and work together. But I'd like to think it was in good, on good terms uh, and was respected by a, a lot of the people for the stuff I do, because I do, I do things, John... Not because you know, people say, well, I'm a Marxist and I'm a Leninist and, you know, or a Trotskyite or whatever. You know, I haven't even scratched the surface to go very deep to find out exactly what people mean when they kind of self-compartmentalize themselves as being... But I, I know I'm a socialist from the values that, that socialism portrays, but I do things from a moral compass. I say, what's the right thing? And then I try and do the right thing. So I don't say, oh, here, we, I'm not going to support that because these people are doing something else. I just look at the situation and go, what's right from wrong here? And then I follow what I believe to be the right course of action. So I should never say anything I don't really believe because I've never joined a party that's made me say something that doesn't sit with me and, and I value my independence which marginalises me I mean people have said to me before you know we could give you a good place in the party and you could speak for us and you could represent us and you could do well for yourself but I prefer to maintain 
my integrity through through my independence, and my independence is my moral compass between right and wrong. A few words about a person who's stood by you over these years, Pauline. Pauline's fantastic, you know. I sat chatted to her. See, before I went to, uh, give you a quick wee example. Before I went on the road trip to Gaza, we were sitting in, it was like two days before, it might have even been the night before, and we were sitting having a, a, a pizza and it was like a farewell dinner and stuff. And like, I didn't know, I didn't know anything could have happened on the road. You could have had a car accident. I mean, we were driving crazy speeds and, and crazy hours behind the wheel and stuff. And it was very tiring. But before we went, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if we were going to get in. We didn't know if we were going to get hurt when we were there. We didn't know if the convoy was going to be attacked. Uh, we didn't know if we were going to get out once we got in. So there were a lot of ifs and, and, and maybes and, and don't knows about the situation. But uh, we were having a meal and Pauline ended up, she, she ended up her and her, we were explaining to her mate uh, what was happening and then the two of them started crying and all and that's when it suddenly struck me. I thought, here, holy fuck, oh, pardon my language. I thought, uh, here, you know, they're crying. Maybe, maybe I'd bitten off more than I wanted two years. So, I mean, she was worried for the 36 days I was on the road. Plus, I had a business, and she ran that business for the 36 days that I'd been away. And then she went with me to the West Bank, and then she let me go on a second convoy. And when I went to Syria last year, to be honest with you, I'm in my 50s, I've never written a will. But before I went to Syria last year, I sat down and wrote a will. Look, because of the sanctions on Syria, we couldn't fly direct. Plus, I assume Damascus Airport was closed because it, it was being mortared from eastern Ghouta, one of the suburbs in uh, Damascus by ISIS Daesh on the Asia front. So we, we had to go when we went to Damascus. We went from Belfast to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Istanbul, Istanbul to Beirut, and then we were met at Beirut Airport and driven five hours from Beirut down to Damascus. And I just had this vision all the way down that we're going to drive down one of these main highways or whatever, and up's going to pop up an illegal roadblock, and we're going to disappear and not be seen again. So, I mean, I have in some levels, even in my own mind, if not in physical reality, I'll put myself at risk at times. And to be fair, then Pauline's been with me every step of that journey. And when I said to her one time, I said, you know, why, why do you put up with this and why do you let me do this? Pauline says to me, well, I know you, Fran. If I said don't go, you'd say, Pauline, I'm going anyway. So... Her support is unqualified and unhesitating. And over the years, you know, she's not come around to my way of thinking, but Pauline's a humanitarian at heart, and she knows what I am. She knows that I'm doing what I'm doing for the right reasons, and I'd like to believe that's why she supports me. Okay, well, thank you so much for all your great work you're doing. And that was Fra Hughes talking about his activism, and the book's called an activist's tale, My Walk with Palestine. I'm sure you'll find it on the line, online somewhere along the line. That's Fra Hughes. And this is 3CR. Ordinary book documents with care not only the horror of living through the 1965 killings, but also the political lives of members of the Indonesian left. Through oral history, Heman brings to life the struggles of these historical actors and offers a new history of the Indonesian left. That was written by Catherine McGregor from Melbourne University. The book in question is Death and Survival in the Anti-Communist Violence in East Java, Indonesia by Dr Vanessa Heerman who currently lectures in Indonesian Studies at Charles Darwin University in Darwin. When I spoke to Vanessa recently, I asked her about growing up in Indonesia and how much she knew about the history 
of 1965 and onwards. When I was growing up, so I spent the first 11 years of my life in East Java, in Indonesia, and I went to primary school when I was growing up there, and certainly it was something that was never discussed, uh, let alone taught at school. So I didn't know anything about those events until I came to Australia and also then not uh, until many years later, many years after I'd, I'd been living in Australia that I found out about the massacres. So when I was growing up, I always thought the communists were extremely bad people who murdered these six army generals in Lubang Buaya, near Jakarta, and they pushed the general's bodies into the well, and that was all I knew. And so when I was growing up, you know, spectres of, of communists and communist women were represented as if they were evil, you know, whether it was in comic books or in kids' books and things like that. And that's what I distinctly remember about growing up, was being really afraid of the PKI, the Indonesian Communist Party, because that was the, the sorts of messages that you received. And when I was in uh, grade six, this was one of my last memories of living in Malang in East Java, was when our school group was taken to see a, an army-sponsored government propaganda film about those events on the 30th of September in 1965, which led to the, um, the downfall of, of Sukarno. And uh, this movie was then screened every year until 1998 with the fall of Suharto. So I was uh, one of the first kids in Malang probably to see this film in 1984 and shortly after that I migrated to Australia and the experience of watching that film, you know, really has stayed with me uh, ever since because I'd seen a, a film on about Cinderella in that cinema before that a few weeks earlier and then, then I, I was taken to see this horror film about how bloodthirsty the communists were and there were kids from grades four, five and six and I remember it was a very long film, three and a half hours and the children were screaming in the cinema trying to get away from these horrific images and at the time I thought um, it was a really strange thing to be taking kids to and so a cinema that I'd associated with um, happy memories became something different, I suppose, after after having seen that film there. So, yeah, for me it was a new discovery when I was about 17 about the mass killings that had happened right there in my hometown and, and all throughout Java, Bali and, and uh, other places in Indonesia as well. Just wondering about what it was like at home, like the day that you went home after that picture. Did you discuss it at home? Do you remember? Oh, well, I just felt that it was a really sort of horrific experience and I didn't, um, I can't remember whether I, I spoke about it to my family. So we lived with my extended family um, in a big family house in Malang and it was just such a strange experience, I suppose. But it was also expected. That was the other thing. So there were certain things where you, you just didn't question because it was expected that, that children would be taken to see that film in order to drive home the message that that communists were not were not likable people and they were a group of people that we should all be wary of. So, yeah, we probably didn't speak about it so much, also because there was a certain taboo, I suppose, about, about those events as well. So I found that my family often spoke in euphemisms about what had happened to particular people or the events of 
1965 and people disappearing and things like that. And whenever I tried to ask some questions about that, people would always then clam up and my relatives would say, oh, don't you worry about it, don't talk about it. So probably that would have been the reason why we wouldn't have discussed the film in depth, but also because it was just something that the government expected you to do. So there's that level of understanding living under the Suharto regime that, well, it's just something you've got to do. It's a ritual that you've got to take part in in order not to create any problems. The focus of this book is Estara. Is that because that was where you came from or was it because there were worse massacres there than other places in Indonesia? I suppose it's a bit of both. So I became interested because of the involvement of civilian perpetrators in the killings and in the violence. So I wanted to know how it was possible that civilians would take part in uh, committing acts of violence. What things did you need? What factors were needed in order to uh, unleash those kinds of killings? So I became interested in that. And also because I felt that so many of these events were happening around me at the time in the 1980s and 70s when I was uh, living in Malang that there were, for example, the Malang Women's Prison that I would go past near my house that um, I didn't realise that that prison contained many political prisoners. And so for me, it was happening right where I was and it affected the people around me and that was a, it's a combination of factors, I suppose, of the the, uh, the personal as well as the desire to uncover the aspect of the, the involvement of civilians in the killings. Did you find an answer to that, why there were so many civilian per- perpetrators? It's a, it's a complex thing because there were uh, various elements of the use of propaganda, but also uh, people, were, people were afraid and people were encouraged and convinced to take part by a, a combination of factors. So there was an element of force, but also they felt that Islamic religious communities could be under threat from the communists. And a lot of that is from uh, as a product of the, the propaganda campaigns that the army unfurled across Java. And it was also because there were political rivals to the Communist Party during this period of guided democracy under Sukarno. So our political rivals like other political parties like Nadatul Ulama and so on. And so it was, I suppose, uh, it also benefited the other political parties as well to have the communists out of the way. So in a way it was an, an intersection of interests that came together, but of course the military or, or the army in particular played the dominant role in terms of being the, you know, the, the chief, the motor force of the suppression campaign against the communists. How difficult has it been for you to do the research on this? Because I know that it's been kept a quiet secret, or um, I don't know whether quite secret, for so many years that there are up to a million people, some say, died in those years, yet the government is still not letting people know exactly what happened. Is that what you found or did you find that it was opening up and you know you could find out things that maybe people couldn't find out 10 years ago? I suppose the research that I did is very much a product of the, the reformasi, the democratisation phase of Indonesia's history. So 
I can't overstate the importance of the of the Reformasi period because it was really crucial in this because uh, were it not for these radical changes that took place in Indonesia with the fall of Suharto in 1998, it would have been difficult to conduct the research, particularly when I speak with uh, elderly survivors of the violence whom I interviewed. It would have been impossible, I think. Not impossible, but, but really difficult. So this research really benefited from that opening up process. So probably from 1998, I'd say, to about 2004, was probably the most open Indonesia was in terms of recovering stories about this past. And, you know, people were publishing memoirs, oral history collections, biographies, autobiographies, comic books, books of sketches about various detention camps. So it was a really uh, a flourishing field of inquiry immediately after the end of Suharto in 1998. And I think it would be fair to say that under President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, from about 2004-2005, it started to really the pace for reform in terms of human rights accountability really began to slow down quite a bit. And one of the catalysts for that was the uh, cancellation, the repeal of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Act, which uh, was passed in 2004. So that was declared unconstitutional for a number of reasons, one of which was of the, the problematic amnesty provisions within that law, but no law has ever replaced that. So the momentum sort of dissipated after that, and I think what we're now seeing is, particularly after the 50th anniversary of the violence, which occurred in 2015, was the 50th anniversary, we're seeing a very fierce fight back to try to shut down discussions, film screenings, book launches and so on that deal with the history of 1965 in Indonesia. By whom? Anti-communist groups, army officers, some Islamic groups in different parts of the country. So there have been dozens of closures of public events related to 1965 from 2015 until now. So we're seeing a, a resistance to trying to discover different versions about 1965. There's a real desire to turn the clock back to the way it was under the Suharto regime, this unproblematic narrative of the communists being the bad people and they had to be suppressed and forevermore the Communist Party shall not uh, be permitted to rise again or ideas of Marxism-Leninism shall not be allowed to circulate in Indonesia, that we should just return to the status quo under the Suharto regime. But, you know, the question is, is it possible to return to that? Because of that flowering of, of research and literature, and now people are turning to the arts in particular to depict 1965, but also the effects, the ongoing multi-generational effects of 1965. Is it possible to put the genie back in the bottle? Uh, and I don't think that, you know, we can return to the period during the Suharto regime, that we're now in a, in a different uh, context now. There was a People's Tribunal on 1965 that took place in 2015. So there have been many, many attempts to bring up to light what happened in 1965 in the various different regions of Indonesia. So this book of mine really sits 
within a field in which there are more and more books being published about 1965 and what we know about 1965 by Indonesian scholars as well as uh, scholars working outside of Indonesia. During your research, do you believe the people opened up more to you because you were Indonesian, because you were brought up in that time in Indonesia as a child? I couldn't tell you exactly. That you spoke Indonesian? Yes, I don't know what the how the interviewers might have perceived me, but I think that in me they also see a child of the new order, somebody who grew up under the new order, under that ideological blanket about what happened in 1965 and across a number of other issues like East Timor, for example, that, that we were that generation born and, and grew up during the height of the new order. So... There's a certain desire from my interviewees to tell me what really happened. It's about, like, I think for them it's a, it's a mission to educate the generations which had grown up under that lie, that they felt that it was something that they could do. Was They wanted to tell me what had happened. They wanted to um, give me a particular reading of politics which were drawn from their activism in the 50s and 60s. And I guess for people of my generation, and I know I, many other researchers, Indonesian researchers in particular, who also feel this way, is that it's about building a bridge between the generation that had experienced those events of the 50s and 60s and my generation. And there's, a, I suppose there's a rupture that was created with the mass killings and the uh, regime change which occurred from Sukarno to Suharto so that uh, it was about, for them, I think it was, for the interviewees, it was about trying to reach out to the next generation and be able to speak to that generation in a way that they were not able to under the Suharto regime when their capacity to speak and the audience that they were able to muster very much were very um, controlled and restricted by the New Order regime. So because of that, they thought it was an exercise in bridge building of trying to reach out to the next generation. But of course, with the rupture that happened, we've also lost a lot of language, a common language. The words that they speak may not mean the same as what, how those words have evolved in the Indonesian language. So there are political terms, terms of mobilization, for example, that were very much present in the 50s and 60s when Indonesia was trying to find an alternative to the Cold War and trying to find international alliances outside of the superpowers. So it's a world that's gone in a way and it's a world that was not transmitted to the next generation. There's a a, a counter-revolution that Indonesia experienced uh, that we're still trying to recover from. And so the two, you know, that the older generation want to speak to us but we also have to overcome these years of division and the loss of language and common ground that we've all inherited as a result of the policies of the New Order regime of just completely trying to completely quarantine this group of people so that they couldn't speak or influence another generation of people. And that's very much a deliberate strategy by the regime in order to ensure that there was, you know, one main political agenda and political ideology that would carry the day and not those other ones 
that they had effectively suppressed in the late 1960s. I'm speaking with Dr Vanessa Hearman about her book Death and Survival in the Anti-Communist Violence in East Java, Indonesia. But surely, Vanessa, the trauma hasn't gone. That's still with the people. Is that correct? Yes, in, in varying degrees. When I write this book, what I've been thinking about has been that the people who uh, have chosen to speak to me, they've chosen to remember and remember something that they then narrate to me. However, there are many, many other people who haven't decided to do that, who haven't wanted to remember because it's too painful, it's embarrassing, it's shameful for whatever reason, the roles that they might have played in the past, maybe they feel a sense of complicity or it's too painful to revisit. And it's, you know, of course, when you're writing a book like this, while on one hand I depend on government and military reports and unanalyzed sources like that from the archives, I'm also talking to people about their recollections, not just about that period in history, but about their entire lives, to try and uncover the activist experiences of the Indonesian left, that that's very much a part that, you know, we have to find that common language again to talk about that activism and to try to represent that to the next generation. And that's when I talk about, you know, the loss of language and, and common expressions and things like that, that you sort of have to rebuild. It's about rebuilding a world um, that's no longer there. And when you are relying on oral narratives, you're also relying on people's capacity to recall and capacity to speak about their experiences. And sometimes people aren't able to do that or they're unwilling to do it. So I found that, for example, in, in my own family, that people have not spoken about that in my family and it's only because I've been investigating this period that it has triggered certain memories for them about how they survived that period and about how our family was affected by the events of 1965. But it's almost that those memories come screaming out because of what I'm doing, that it's triggering recall in them. And, you know, my relatives have said they wanted to speak to me about these things, but Every time the recorder comes out, they change their minds or they, they refuse to be recorded formally about these events. And so it is about a lot of what we do in terms of historical writing is about reconstruction. It's also partial. You know, we can't, we can't replicate, about, replicate fully what that world was like because of a number of reasons. Trauma is one, issues of security, whether it's safe to recount our experiences now, so one of the things I didn't do in my research was I didn't ask people explicitly whether they would tell me if they had Communist Party membership. And I chose that because I wanted people to self-select and tell me if that's what they wanted to do because I recognised that in the context of Indonesia, to say I was a card-carrying party member was too sensitive even at that time even after the end of Suharto. So I tended not to ask about that. The other thing I didn't ask about was torture. I didn't ask in detail if people were tortured, how they were tortured and so on. It's about trying to create a comfortable environment for people in order that they can feel comfortable in sharing certain things with you which may not come 
the first time, you know, in the first 10 minutes that you speak, but people will circle back around to those things as they develop trust with you. So it, it is, it, it's a reconstruction process that is difficult, that's really fraught because of those issues of trauma, but also that the destruction of the left and also the records and things like that, it was so thorough that sometimes you only knew about particular people through word of mouth. For example, like if people had been detained and disappeared from prison, somebody would remember them and would recount a story about that person. So sometimes the people who might have held public office and things like that might only have survived in the memories of people like them, of the left, of people who were alive at that time. So there are so many ruptures in this that when you're trying to reconstruct a past that, you know, people just get forgotten or public figures like the mayor of Surabaya, you know, for a long time he wasn't acknowledged as the mayor of Surabaya because he was purged and he disappeared from prison. So it's, you know, trying to take back that history is something else that we can do through this all this research and writing about 1965. But it's also extremely hard because the records are partial, the records aren't all there, and with the demise of, you know, the, the passing of this generation of the people who lived through this, it becomes even more difficult with the failings of memory and so on over time. It becomes even more difficult to reconstruct this past. So I feel very lucky that I had that window in which to collect the interviews and so on because the researchers who come after us now would have to think about different sources to use rather than direct personal narratives. I think just what you've been saying in the last couple of minutes is that you're talking about 1965 to maybe 1966, 67, but this trauma for the people went on for decades and decades and people lost their jobs, they lost their careers, they lost their families, they were imprisoned in concentration camps, as you say, they were tortured. It went on for a long, long time and people... It isn't that long ago that things changed a little. Yes, that's right. So it's um, a particularly insidious policy of the New Order regime is this punishment of people for long periods of time, for decades, and also punishing their families and their relatives. It's um, firstly the people who were detained, uh, some for 14 years or more, without trial. Firstly, that an issue in terms of, uh, you know, serious human rights abuse of detention without trial. So in the first place, people didn't know what they were accused of having done and how long they could expect to be in detention. So that's one. But once people left detention, they were also punished by having to report regularly to the local administration, maybe to the local police station or the army base in their particular village or town and their ID cards were stamped with the stamp that said they were a former political prisoner. You know, their families were under pressure as being connected to former political prisoners, and so therefore they were denied a range of opportunities of study, work, and so on. The the regime treated the people as pariahs for decades, and that has, you know, multi-generational impact as well. The problem doesn't just you know, go away from 65, 66, you also have a severely traumatised population having witnessed 
a spectacular change of government accompanied by extreme violence and then uh, people are carrying that trauma into living under army dominated rule for 32 years in which the former left former political prisoners are very effectively quarantined away from the population so it's a complex case to resolve in terms of how do you rehabilitate the people who were detained without trial, uh, not knowing what they'd done, and also the effects on their families who uh, lost their livelihood. You know, children became resentful of their parents because they felt the parents had done something wrong. Certainly that's what they taught at school, that your parents are in prison because they did something wrong and that is the reason why you're missing out on opportunities, on scholarships, on education. That is why you're impoverished. It has enormous repercussions for Indonesians alive today whose you know, grandparents, whose parents were discriminated against for decades. That's why it makes this issue such a complex thing to address because it's not just a, a one-off. It's not a, a, an instance of massacres which resulted in the deaths of half a million people, but it's got repercussions right up to 1998. So one of my interviewees, said to me, well, you know, I felt I feel a lot freer than what I did before, but I still can't tell my grandchildren that their grandparents were those people who'd been detained. And this particular man felt a grudge towards the government about his situation. Why was his family affected in this way? It broke up, you know, whole families when people had to go into prison, they had to go on the run, a lot of those wounds were never healed. You know, people gave birth on the run. One particular interviewee, one woman I interviewed, she left her baby with some villagers that she thought would look after the baby while she had to go on the run to avoid army encirclement. And she found out later on that the, the baby was left in a cemetery because the villagers became so afraid about the army uh, operations coming into that area. You know, for many, many years, the mother never knew what had happened to her baby daughter until about 2005. So we're talking about, you know, families that have been broken apart as a result of this. I think that it is really recent and 65 might have been in the past, but it still lives on in people's families, you know, and in their psyches. Now that, you know, the Indonesian government is looking like it's, not going to do anything about 1965 and about rehabilitating the victims or apologising to them. We've got to think about what the effect of that is in terms of the pain that people feel when there look to have been signs of the government taking these reparative measures that it's not going to happen, that we have to think that this is a complex, multi-dimensional issue for Indonesia to address. Did you have the opportunity to speak to any of the civilian or army perpetrators of this violence? I did. I uh, interviewed the uh, army commander who presided over the 1968 Trisula operation in Blitar that destroyed the last, sort of the, the strongest attempt to, to uh, regroup and resist by remnants of the Communist Party. I also interviewed some low-ranking people who were implicated in the violence, one platoon commander in East Java, and we discussed 
you know, how people were identified for detention, how his men, the men who he commanded as part of this uh, civilian militia group that was linked to Nahdlatul Ulama, Indonesia's largest Islamic organisation, how did his, his platoon operate in that time? And uh, how was information conveyed to them about who to detain and who to kill and where to go to uh, find the victims that they had to kill on a particular night, for example. So we went through how the killings unfolded in that particular region. I also interviewed another man also linked with Najatul Ulama in the South Blitar area and to talk about how the anti-communist operations unfolded there. It's striking that there are great regional variations even within East Java depending on the political makeup of the place as to how the repression was carried out. So in places where the um, communists were particularly strong, the left was strong, in towns like uh, Blitar, Madiun, Kadiri, for example, then you actually have perhaps the need to bring in reinforcements from outside to carry out those operations. It really was different as to how it was carried out in parts of East Java. There were, there were similarities, there were patterns, there were certain forms of propaganda that we used to convince people that their lives were under threat and they needed to take action against the communists or the communists were going to come after them. But there were also distinctions in the way the violence was carried out. And I think that's where the strength was in terms of unleashing this violence, was having certain patterns that you replicate across Java even, but let's say across East Java, the particular province. Then what the army did, which was a strength of theirs in terms of carrying out these violent operations effectively, was then to look for what is possible at the local level. So who were your allies at the local level that you could rely on to carry out certain things in terms of the violence? So yes, you have certain patterns that are coming from national, from Java, but how do you actually carry that out at the local level? Who are those people who are, or forces who are opposed to the communists? That makes it a very effective way to carry out the operation because then you're taking advantage of local conflicts and local knowledge as well about who's who in terms of people's political affiliations and that also then makes it very complex as a case to resolve in terms of you know when we talk about justice we talk about reconciliation we talk about truth the implication of a lot of people in different ways whether they wanted to or not make it a very complex issue to resolve because by drawing on uh, local actors, local conditions, you're making it more complicated for people to speak about what happened in those days and what were their particular roles. So when you force a uh, group of people to take part or to guard detainees or to go along to someone's house to point them out to the local army, you are also sowing a lot of complicity in that community and it then makes it difficult for people to talk about the past and to talk about their own individual particular roles in the past and that's what makes the violence so effective and what makes it so hard to tackle afterwards. Finally Vanessa, the work that you've done on this book, how has it impacted on you? What do you believe are the major strengths of this book to get to the 
bottom of what really happened in those years? I suppose for me, I carried out the research over a number of years, more than five years, of going to Indonesia and undertaking these interviews, collecting the documents, the reports and so on, trying to make sense of how this violence occurred in East Java and how it impacted on people. And I was very glad to have had that long period of time to do a deep study on this period in East Java because by virtue of where my interviewees were and they took me uh, in the journey to South Blitar, you know, they, they forced me to deal with South Blitar and what that base was about in terms of communist regroupment and resurrection and so on because they were there. And so I had the years of investigating and reflecting on the extent to which the new order in Indonesia didn't come about easily overnight, that it was a process of struggle, that people tried, for example, this group of, of communists in, in South Blitar and the, the surviving leaders of the Communist Party who went there to try and resurrect the party, that they held some hope that it was possible to turn back the army-dominated rule that was on the horizon at the time. For us here, looking back on it over 50 years later, it's hard for us to appreciate the fact that there was a movement to stop the army from coming to power in the way that it then held on to power for 32 years. The research and the time that I had to conduct that research enabled me to take a long perspective on the violence 65-66. So by that I mean I first look at the 1940s and when the Communist Party became legal again, once Indonesia declared independence in August 1945, in that legal environment, what did the Communist Party do to try to, to grow its influence? What were the years like between the 40s to 1965? So it's about bringing out stories of political and social activism and, and what meanings do people have, do people hold in the Communist Party and the leftist ideas that they represented? Why did it attract so many Indonesians? And then the violence itself in the middle and then towards the end of the book I talk about after the killings have subsided, what did people do? Where did people end up? So when they went into hiding, then they went to South Blitar to try and rebuild the party in this sort of uh, mountainous, dry, arid area of East Java where they had uh, enjoyed a great deal of support. So what happened there? Is it true what the New Order said, that this was a fully-fledged guerrilla base uh, that was going to overthrow the uh, Suharto regime or the, the government of Indonesia using arms that were just like the Viet Cong? So what was the truth about this base? So I guess that's one of the strengths of the book, is it actually doesn't just look at 65 as a snapshot that all of a sudden all these people died how did they die, but also to try and rehumanise who these people were, to discover, you know, why did people uh, become active in the Communist Party and the associated organisations? What was it about the early years of independence of Indonesia that motivated people to want to become politically active? What, how did they read the world and Indonesia's place in the world? And, you know, that section, and then the part about, you know, what happened after the killing subsided? Where did people go? And what were they trying to do in South Blitar? What were they trying to do to, you know, how, how did they see 
the period immediately after the killings, why did they think it was still worthwhile to intervene in politics? That the killings didn't lead to the immediate cessation of all politics. People still continued to be political. So what did they do? Why did they do that? So by taking that long perspective, I think it gives people a sense of agency. It, it tells a story about humans, uh, you know, capacity for agency and what they do to exercise that agency of going on the run, of lying in wait, lying in hiding, and then trying to find a better way to, to fight this, this repression that had suddenly befallen them. So it, it really is about a story of human agency. And I think that when we talk about genocides and, and mass killings, we often lose that perspective about what people do to try to resist the cataclysm that has suddenly intruded upon their lives so suddenly. What do people do in the face of that? So really, at the, at the heart of it, that's what I wanted to discover. Uh, and it started from the idea of, if it were me, what would I have done? And, you know, placing my, myself in the, in the shoes of, you know, my relatives. My mum was 20 years old in 1965, so she was a, a university student. Suddenly this occurred. She had been involved in pro-Sukarno student organisations. If that were me, what would I have done to survive that? How would I have coped? I suppose it's about that. It starts sort of from, from a sense of empathy in the sense that, you know, empathy with an occurrence which is so great and so really extraordinary that people would struggle to cope with that. And I wanted to see, well, what did people do at that time? So the story of human agency is really at the, at the core of what I wanted to do in looking at the 1965 killings in East Java. Well, congratulations. It's such a, a mammoth task to get all that done. Thank you, Jen. And that's Dr Vanessa Heerman talking about her new book, Unmarked Graves, Death and Survival in the Anti-Communist Violence in East Java, Indonesia. And Vanessa lectures at the moment in Indonesian Studies at Charles Darwin University in Darwin. And I'm sure you could have a look online for that book, Unmarked Graves, Death and Survival in the Anti-Communist Violence in East Java, Indonesia. That's all I have for this week. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, coming up in a very short time with Done By Law. So I'll say bye for now and see you then.